recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Chris Tagoni here on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, June 8th, 2012. Yes, I had to think about that one. I did a presentation at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Kentucky last Sunday at their church, at the Church of Pastors down Elmore and Mark Downey, and, and I had a wonderful time. I hope it was a good presentation and it was worth their time, and I thank them for that. Um, last weekend, I spent the weekend at the home of Mark and Debbie Downey, and they were extremely warm and gracious hosts, and I thank them for that. During the week, I got to see um, David and the Verbal Vandal for the first time, and that was wonderful. This weekend, I'm in Shreveport, Louisiana, at the home of Mark and Sharon Williams, a very good, long-time Christian identity couple, and, and it's a pleasure to be here. Next week, I will be at the home of Don Brown, and during the week, I will be visiting with um, Gerald Mosley and, and several other of the good Christian brethren here in Louisiana, and I look forward to that. Last week, presenting Luke chapter 2, we demonstrated that the Oikumene, the inhabited world, was the living space of the civilized white races in the eyes of the Greeks and Romans. The cosmos was the order or the arrangement of that Oikumene, and therefore, it was the society of the Oikumene, which in the time of Christ never included the alien races. Therefore, understanding that the alien races were never a part of the biblical context, there is no impetus and certainly no biblical commission to extend the grace of Yahweh, our God, to the alien races today. It is actually detrimental, as recent history and any honest observation certainly proves. It is detrimental to the health and the security of our cosmos and of our race, to include them. It is even suicidal of our race to insist upon including these aliens. Now, this leads me to another unplanned conversation. I've accused certain um, Christian identity pretenders as being universalists. And they've actually gone so far as to attempt to write their own definition of universalism simply to deny the label. A certain clown has redefined universalism to mean the turning of aliens into Israelites. That's not the definition. He can't avoid a label 
by creating his own absurd definition. The true definition in the religious sense of the word universalist is one who imagines that the grace of God extends to all people. That's a universalist. And when you say that the Mexicans are going back to Mexico and the Chinamen are going back to China and the Negroes are going back to Africa and there will be peace and prosperity everywhere once the Adamic race is restored. And by saying that, I am quoting a certain one of those clowns. You are basically asserting that the grace of God is extended to the other races. You are a universalist. I don't care if you have your own definition of the word. You're a universalist. You can't avoid the label. It was argued here last week that Christ was most likely born in the late fall or the early autumn of 3 BC. That argument, for the most part, is based upon Luke's opening statement in this very chapter, that Yahshua's ministry began around his 30th birthday, which was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Many modern commentators actually go so far as accusing Luke of being in error here, as if they themselves can actually know better from the incomplete records which we can muster today. A 3 BC registration in time for the celebration of Rome's 750th year and Augustus's 25th year as emperor coincides with this 15th year of Tiberius Caesar and the fact that Christ is now 30 years of age. The age when a Hebrew man may begin serving his people publicly. We should insist that Luke is true and that the modern commentators are in error. Luke is certainly not in error. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the emperorship of Tiberius Caesar, that word emperorship is hegemonia in the Greek. It only appears here in the NT, in the New Testament, in this form. Other forms, the verb and, and the word hegemon, the, the noun referring to the person, are used quite frequently. The verbal form of this same word is used to describe the governorship of Pilate later in this same verse. Here, referring to Tiberius Caesar, it is emperorship although the word has a more general meaning in other applications when it describes governors and those holding lesser offices. And therefore, 
the context of the word hegemonia is important to determine its usage. Liddell and Scott define the word as a leading the way, as a going first, a chief command, or, and, and we see the origination of the English word, hegemony. It was used to translate the Roman word imperium, meaning the reign of the emperor. Tiberius Caesar assumed the Roman hegemony or the Roman emperorship in August of 14 AD after the death of Augustus. And so August of 28 AD would have marked the beginning of his 15th year and also the beginning of John's ministry which must have started during this same year. On the 18th of September, 14 AD, the Roman Senate officially confirmed Tiberius's position as princeps, and therefore the beginning of Tiberius's 15th year, as it was reckoned by Luke, may not have begun until September of 28 AD, but it begins no later and not earlier than Tiberius's death in then I'm sorry than Augustus's death in August. If Augustus is alive, Tiberius can't have the hegemony. Only Augustus does. As it can be seen in Numbers chapter four. Service to the congregation was begun by a Levite at age 30. This age was made the age that was acceptable for men to begin duties such as ministering or preaching or, or managing a, a public function. 3 BC, John the Baptist is born in March or April. Christ is born in late September or early October. 14 AD, in August, Tiberius comes to the hegemony upon the death of Augustus. 28 AD, in August, Tiberius begins his 15th year. Christ turns 30 shortly thereafter and is baptized by John, who had already turned 30 in March or April. 32 AD, in the spring, is the crucifixion of the Christ after the three and a half year ministry which he performed. Many commentators insist that John turned 30 by 26 AD and that Christ was also born in 4 BC and therefore they blame Luke as being inaccurate or they attempt to somehow rectify Luke by conjecturing that perhaps the first year of Tiberius's emperorship had somehow been a couple of years earlier than 14 AD. So to support their contentions, those commentators claimed that Luke was referring to Tiberius's association on the throne with Augustus before his death in 12 AD, and these claims 
have no merit. Tiberius's position was virtually assured from 4 AD when he was adopted by Augustus and he was named as Augustus's successor, making him the second in command in the empire at that time. However, he didn't have the hegemony. Tiberius was named co-princeps with Augustus in 12 AD or in 13 AD as it is variously argued from several disparate historical sources. He was never the emperor. He never had the hegemony until Augustus died in 14 AD. Luke's choice of that word is very careful. Luke's 15th year of Tiberius must be counted from 14 AD, the year when Augustus died. So his 15th year begins in 28. Now in the 15th year of the emperorship of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip his brother being Tetrarch of Etruria, and the land of Trachonitis, and Lusanius being Tetrarch of Abilene. The Codex Bizai calls Pontius Pilate an administrator. Pontius Pilate is mentioned on several occasions in events described in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 18, and in his Wars of the Judeans, Book 2. Tacitus also mentioned him. He is definitely a historical figure. Tacitus called him a procurator of Judea. His name is found on an inscription which dates from the first century, which was discovered at Caesarea Maritima in Palestine in 1961. The inscription is detailed in Biblical Archaeology Review, among other publications, in the September-October 2004 issue. That inscription is a tribute which Pilate made to Tiberius Caesar, and on it, Pilate is called the Prefect of Judea. In the early empire, a prefect had more authority than a procurator one office being military in nature and the other administrative and usually connected with financial administration. So the inscription has corrected Tacitus's historical record. The title Tetrarch is but a transliteration of the Greek word tetrarches. It means the ruler of a fourth part of a country. As Judea was divided, not long after the death of the first king Herod, the Edomite, and the banishment of his successor and son, Archelaus, in 6 AD, we see that Luke names the various tetrarchs, the rulers of a fourth part of Judea. Philip, the brother of Herod, Herod, Herod Antipas, is often mentioned in Josephus, and Lusanius is also mentioned in Josephus in Antiquities, Book 19. All of these people are very historical people. Josephus attests 
to their offices and we see that Luke is a very exacting historian. Hi, okay, Luke 3, verse 2. In the high priesthood of Hannes and Caiaphas, the word of Yahweh had come upon John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. The office of high priest in the Old Testament is an office held by a single individual for life. And so, under the proper laws of God, only one man at a time can bear the title. Yet, as Josephus attests on many occasions in both his antiquities and throughout his book, Wars of the Judeans, first Herod the king, and then later on the Romans appointed and removed high priests very often and for various reasons so that the office was no more than a political tool. Here in Luke and throughout the New Testament, we see multiple men associated with the term, or we see the term appearing in the plural because more than one man held the office and was alive and active at any given time. And even after the removal from the office, men retained the title, or at least they were still referred to as high priests. In the same manner, we see men today retain titles such as doctor and professor, or titles related to judgeships and military rank, much in the same manner, long after they're retired. Additionally, on at least one occasion, multiple men in the same family held the post of high priest in Judea. Josephus describes in Antiquities Book 20 that the five sons of Ananus, who himself was a high priest, had all held the post at one time or another during their lives and before any of them actually died. Luke 3, verse 3. And he had gone into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming an immersion, or a baptism, of repentance for a remission of errors, or sins, as it is written in the book of the sayings of Isaiah the prophet, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the prince, make straight his paths. Every ravine shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked paths shall be into straight ones, and the rough ways into smooth roads, and all flesh shall see the salvation of Yahweh, but all flesh won't like it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, 
and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Josephus, so we see the first prophecy of John the Baptist as early as the time of Isaiah. Josephus, in his Antiquities, Book 18, tells us at length of John the Baptist and how John was esteemed by the people and how Herod had John slain. Herod had lost the battle in dispute, in a dispute which he had with a king, an Arabian king named Aratus. Here are Josephus's comments, and I quote, Now some of the Judeans thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Judeans to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness toward one another and piety toward God. And so to come to baptism, for that the washing would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away of some sins, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. All Israel shall be saved. Now when others came in crowds about him, for they were very greatly moved by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. Accordingly, he was sent as a prisoner, out of Herod's suspicious temper, to Machaerus, the city I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Now the Judeans had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod, and a mark of God's displeasure to him. In that passage of Josephus I just read, I just read there are some bracketed comments in the quote from Josephus which belong to his editors and which I do not feel are appropriate, so I skipped the editor's comments. Josephus was telling us not what he believed. He was a Pharisee. He explained what he believed when he described the sect of the Pharisees. Josephus here was telling us what he knew that John believed when he described why John was, was performing his baptism, as opposed to what the Pharisees believed about baptism. And that itself would be an interesting study. Luke 3, chapter 7.
Then he said to the crowd coming out to be immersed by him, race of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The verb translated as warned here is hupodikneumi. It implies, it's Strong's number 5263, it implies that the warning was done surreptitiously, as if they were not supposed to know to flee from the coming wrath. The Pharisees did not come to John because they believed him. They really came in order to see what he was doing. Christ later challenged them concerning this. That challenge is recorded in Matthew chapter 21 from verse 25. The baptism of John, from where was it? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did you not then believe him? Luke tells us in Luke chapter 7, and I read from verse 29, and all the people heard, and the tax collectors deemed Yahweh just, being baptized in the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of Yahweh in regard to themselves not being baptized by him. So we see that these men were certainly not baptized by John. John was sent to cleanse the sons of Levi, as it is evident in Malachi chapter 3. And I read from verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And Yahweh, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Malachi is saying that Christ is God here. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. John's having called certain of the Judeans a race of vipers by itself indicates that they are certainly not Levites. The answers to their identity and the reasons for this accusation are supplied later in Luke's Gospel in chapters 10 and 11, among other places. In Luke chapter 10, we see the following account after the apostles whom Yahshua had sent out to announce his presence had returned. And I quote from verse 17. Then the 72 returned with great joy, saying, Prince, even the demons are subjected to us by your name. And he said to them, 
I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy, and no one shall by any means do you injustice. But in this you must not rejoice, that spirits are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are inscribed in the heavens. In Luke chapter 11, we learn the race of those who disputed with Christ. And I quote from verse 45. Then replying, one of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, saying these things, you also insult us. So he said, and to you lawyers, woe, because you load men with burdens hard to bear, and these burdens you touch not with one of your fingers. Woe to you, because you build the monuments of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are the witnesses, and you consent to the works of your fathers, because they killed them, and you build. For this reason also, the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, and some of them they shall kill and they shall persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. Woe to you lawyers, because you have taken the key of knowledge. You do not enter in yourselves, and you prohibit those who are entering in. Only Cain killed Abel. And therefore, these men in opposition to Christ must be of the race of Cain and could not purely be of the race of Seth, as are the true Israelites. It is learned from Jeremiah chapter 2, from Ezekiel chapter 16, and many other places in Scripture that the remnant of Judah in Jerusalem had been infiltrated by Canaanites even before the deportations of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It is evident in Josephus that Jerusalem was further infiltrated and virtually taken over in the 2nd century BC by Edomites and that Herod the king was an Edomite by blood as were many of his associates and appointees. The race of Cain, the Canaanites, can be traced down through their admixture with the Canaanites, with the Edomites, and with many of the people of Jerusalem all the way to the time of Christ. The statement which Christ made in Luke chapter 10 connects Satan to demons and also connects them to serpents and scorpions, which are here being used as symbolic allegories for people. There, 
he has this exchange with his disciples where Luke wrote, then the 72 returned, and Christ said, and, and they said, even the demons are subjected to us. And Christ said, I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven. Then he says, and this statement is connected, Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy. All of these statements are connected. Satan's fall from heaven, the serpents and scorpions of Judea, the serpents, the race of vipers that John identified, the race of Cain that Christ identified. These are all a common theme throughout the scripture. The Revelation in chapter 12 also describes the fall of Satan. And it says, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting with the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels. And they did not prevail, nor was their place found any longer in heaven. And the great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, or the false accuser and the adversary. He who deceives the whole inhabited earth had been cast into the earth, and his messengers had been cast down with him. This Satan which fell from heaven, is also that old serpent, which must refer to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. These are the fallen angels, the angels that left their first estate, as Jude calls them, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the common thread that ties them to these Judeans of Christ's time is the blood of Cain, who, according to John chapter 8, was a devil and a murderer from the beginning. And these were his children. And who was the son of the wicked one? 1 John 3, 12. This race of vipers, which John addresses, are their descendants. They are a race. They are a mixed and corrupt race. That is why they are Satan. And they can be identified as Edomites. And that's proven here by John's statements, which follow, as, long as, as well as many other places in Scripture. John says here, Luke 3, chapter 8, you should really make fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin by saying among yourselves we have Abraham for a father for I say to you that Yahweh is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones John knows that these people are evil, where he says, who warned you? And that word, hupodikonomi, indicates a surreptitious warning, 
a secret warning. They weren't supposed to know to flee from the wrath of God. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? John is challenging them to do good, just as Yahweh challenged Cain to do good. And Cain was told, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? At Genesis 4-7. That's a rhetorical question. That's a challenge. And immediately, Cain went out and killed his brother. In the next verse, of course, Yahweh knew that Cain could not do well, just as he knew that Esau would be a sinner from the womb. In his ministry, Christ always challenged those who opposed him to do good, even knowing full well that they could never do good. John's statement, and do not begin by saying among yourselves, we have Abraham for a father. That statement reflects a legitimate claim by the Edomites or even by the Canaanite children of Shelah, some of the bad figs of Judah, that they were the children of Abraham. The claim is seen again in John chapter 8, where certain of the Judeans claimed to be children of Abraham. They claimed not to be children of fornication. But Christ told them that they were certainly not the children of God. They were children of Abraham, but they were not the children of the promise, and especially since they were all bastards. That Yahweh could raise up children to Abraham from stones is true. But the universalists wrongly use this verse in their vain attempts to corrupt the covenants of God with Israel. While Yahweh could indeed raise up children to Abraham from stones, that would not make them children of Jacob, who alone are the heirs of the covenant, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. Luke 3, 9. But already even the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Surely any tree not producing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Trees are very often used to represent races in Scripture. In the Garden of Evil, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are not fruit trees. They are allegories for races of people. Christ said to his disciples, who were also of his own nation, in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who is abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are not able to do anything. 
Yahshua Christ is the root and the offspring of David, Revelation 22:16, meaning that he created the tree, being Yahweh, and he is one of its branches, having come as one of his own children. When we race mix, we no longer abide in him. What was Adam told in Genesis 3.23? Unless the man reach out and grasp the tree of life and live forever. The man, the woman, Genesis chapter 3, describes a race-mixing incident with the serpent. The remedy is that the man grasps onto his own tree, his own race, and lives forever. When we race mix, we no longer abide in Christ. Therefore, Christ tells us in Matthew 15, verse 13, that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be uprooted. Jude, referring to, and I quote, some men that have stolen in those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men. As he tells us in verse 4 of his epistle, Jude calls them late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted. These are the Canaanites and the Edomites of Judea. These are the people which Yahweh referred to in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, where he says, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then? art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me. The words of Christ at Matthew chapter 7, and I quote from verse 15, Keep away from the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are rapacious wolves. These are Jude's some men that have stolen in. These are the subjects of Paul's warning concerning oppressive wolves in Acts chapter 20. And Christ goes on to say, you shall know them from their fruits. Does anyone gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Thusly, every good tree produces good fruit. But the rotten tree produces evil fruit. A good tree is not able to produce evil fruit. All Israel shall be saved. A good tree is not able to produce evil fruit. Matthew 7, 18. Each tree not producing good fruit, is cut down and cast into the fire. I'm sorry, I missed part of verse 18. Christ says, 
nor is a bad tree able to produce good fruit, period. If you're not Israel, you're not saved. If you're not a part of the tree of life, there's no salvation for you. The reward of the children of God, once eternal life is attained, is another matter. However, the judgment of eternal life, it's along racial lines. It is not along behavioral lines. If you came from the good tree, you cannot be a bad fruit. If you came from a bad tree, you cannot be a good fruit, the words of Christ. The tree is good, and its fruit is good. These are the words of Yahshua Christ himself. Luke 3.10. Then the crowd questioned him, saying, So what should we do? And replying, he said to them, He having two shirts must share with he who has not, and he having food must do likewise. The word shirt in the, in the King James, sometimes it's coat, sometimes it's cloak. The kiton is properly the garment worn next to the skin. It's a shirt. From Exodus chapter 16, which Paul also quotes later in 2 Corinthians 8.14, and I read, And the children of Israel did so and gathered, speaking about the manna fallen in the desert, and some gathered more and some less. And when they did meet it within Homer, when they measured it, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered for every man according to his eating. The gifts which come to us in life rain down from heaven, and with our excess we should see to it that the poor of our kin have no want. From James chapter 2, what is the benefit, my brethren, if one should claim to have faith but does not have works? Is faith able to save him? If a brother or sister becomes naked and lacking daily food, and one from among you should say to them, Go in peace, be warm and fed, but you would not give to them the provisions for the body, what is the benefit? Thusly, also faith, if it should not have works, is by itself dead. Luke 3.12, then also the tax collectors came to be immersed or baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Do not exact any more than that which is appointed to you. The apostle Matthew was a tax collector. That's evident in Matthew chapter 9, where it says, and Joshua, passing from there, sees a man sitting at the tax office called Matthias, or Matthew, 
and says to him, follow me. And arising, he followed him. While it cannot be proven with certainty, it was traditional for men to follow after the vocations of their fathers. Therefore, it is evident that the Levites, who were the tax collectors and administrators of the ancient kingdom, resumed those vocations in the Second Temple period and kept them down to the Roman period, and that many of the tax collectors and the administrators of the time of Christ were also Levites. It was said of the Levites in Malachi chapter 3, in the very prophecy concerning John the Baptist, and I quote, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Here we see them coming to be baptized by John, and they were a class despised by the Pharisees, yet the Pharisees refused to be baptized by John, as it is recorded, as we have read, Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. Luke 3.14, so those who were soldiers also asked him, saying, and what should we do? And he said to them, you should not cause any agitation, nor make false accusations, and be satisfied with your provisions. You should not cause any agitation. The word, diasio, is only here in the New Testament. The King James has it, you should extort from no man by violence. The word is defined by Liddell and Scott to shake violently, to wag, to confound, to throw into confusion. That's how Herodotus used the word and other Greek writers. Then Liddell and Scott defines it as the NT, as the King James had translated it, to extort money from a person. And this last definition I must call into question since the context does nothing to support it, and since it is not defined or used in that manner in any secular writer or authority. The prefix dia, dia, is often used simply to strengthen the sense of another word when it's used in a compound. The root word, sio, is to shake, to move to and fro, metaphorically, to agitate or to disturb. So this word, diasio, is agitation here. John the Baptist is telling the soldiers, you should not cause any agitation, nor make false accusations, and be satisfied with your provisions. For one example, one historical example of such agitation, Although it did occur a few years later, here is Josephus' Wars from Book 2, from line 223, and I quote, Now after the death of Herod, the king of Chalcis, Claudius set Agrippa, the son of Agrippa, 
over his uncle's kingdom, while Cumanus took upon him the office of procurator of the rest of it, which was a Roman province, and therein he succeeded Alexander, under which Cumanus began the troubles and the Judeans' ruin came on. He's talking about the beginning of the uprising. And here we have it. For when the multitude were come together to Jerusalem to the feast of unleavened bread, and the Roman cohort stood over the cloisters of the temple, for they were always armed and kept under guard at the festivals to prevent any sedition which the multitude thus gathered together might make. One of the soldiers pulled back his garment and cowering down in an indecent manner, turned his breach to the Judeans and spoke such words as you might expect upon such a posture. We would call this cracking a moon in vulgar language today. At this, the whole multitude had indignation and made a clamor to Cumanus that he would punish the soldier, while the rasher part of the youth, such as were naturally the most tumultuous, fell to fighting and caught up stones and threw them at the soldiers, upon which Cumanus was afraid lest all the people should make an assault upon him and sent to call for more armed men who, when they came in great numbers into the cloisters, the Judeans were in a very great consternation. Being beaten out of the temple, they ran into the city. And the violence with which they crowded to get out was so great that they trod upon each other and squeezed one another till 10,000 of them were killed insomuch that this feast became the cause of mourning to the whole nation and every family lamented. Cumanus was procurator of Judea just before Felix, whom we know from Acts chapters 23 through 25. So we see that from one episode of agitation by a Roman soldier, a tumult occurred and 10,000 people died. Luke 3.15, and with the people supposing and all reasoning in their hearts concerning John, that perhaps he may be the Christ, John replied, saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you in water, but he comes who is more powerful than me, of whom I am not worthy to loosen the straps of his sandals. And he shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. The people were expecting a Messiah, and they thought that John was him. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem, announcing the birth of the Messiah, as we see in Matthew chapter 2. And it is possible that the account of them had spread throughout Judea, although there was no certainty that it did. In John chapter 1, where some of the first apostles meet Christ for the first time, 
they exclaimed without hesitation that we have found the Messiah, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who was called the Samaritan, said to Christ, being unaware of whom she was speaking to, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. Many people were later disappointed in Christ because their expectation was that he would emancipate them from the Romans and restore the glory that was the old kingdom of David and Solomon. This attitude prevailed as far as Acts chapter 1, before the final ascension of Christ, where Luke writes, So then, they, were, they who were gathered, meaning the apostles, asked him, saying, Prince, that at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. Of course, the answer was negative. John says here, which Matthew chapter 3 also records, Indeed, I baptize you in water, but he who comes, who is more powerful than me, of whom I am not worthy to loosen the straps of his sandals, he shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. In Acts chapter 1, Luke also records these words of Christ. John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Those who cling to the water baptism ritual cling to the baptism of John. They are like that man whom Priscilla and Aquila met in Acts chapter 18. And I quote from verse 24, And a certain Judean named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, a learned man, arrived in Ephesus who was capable in the writings. He was instructed in the way of the prince and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught precisely the things concerning Yahshua, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak openly in the assembly hall. And Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him, took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of Yahweh to him. Now, Priscilla and Aquila did not take him aside and baptize him in water again in the name of Jesus. Rather, they took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of Yahweh to him. There is, as the Apostle Paul wrote, one baptism, and Christians are to be baptized in the death of Christ, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 6.
Therefore, Christ explains to the apostles in Matthew chapter 20 from verse 22, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He's referring to his death. As we see Paul explain, there's one baptism, and that's in his death in Romans chapter 6. They say unto him, we are able. And he says unto them, you shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. To be baptized in the death of Christ is to understand why he died for the children of Israel. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 7 to explain that very thing. Once we make, have that understanding, we immerse ourselves in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of separation, which Yahweh requires for Israel if they are to be restored to the position of his children. Therefore, come out from among them and touch not the unclean. Luke 3.17 Of whom the winnowing fan is in his hand to purge his threshing floor and to gather together the wheat into his storehouse, but the chaff he shall burn with unquenchable fire. In most Bible commentaries, and and I haven't read too many of them, but I've, I've looked at a few, In most Bibles and commentaries, one may be hard-pressed to find a relevant Old Testament reference to the things which John says here. However, there is a parallel found in Isaiah chapter 21, and I will quote from verse 9. And behold, here comes a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen, And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods, he is broken unto the ground. Oh, my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of Yahweh of hosts. The God of Israel have I declared unto you, the burden of Duma, he called to me out of Seir, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. The burden upon Arabia, in the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge. O ye traveling companies of Dedanim, the inhabitants of the land of Timah, 
brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus hath Yahweh said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail, and the residue of the number of the archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken it. These oracles against these people, the people of Dumah, the people of Seir, the people of Arabia, Kedar, and the other places mentioned here, represent the Arab peoples and the Edomite Jews and the judgment which God shall level against them. In this passage of Isaiah, the threshing floor of Yahweh is associated with the fall of Babylon and with the destruction of the Edomite Jew and all the related peoples. Another parallel with John's reference to the purging of the threshing floor is seen where where the first altars that David made to Yahweh in Jerusalem were built upon a threshing floor. And the temple was later built in that same place. This is evident in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where Yahweh appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Oman the Jebusite. The story of David's having bought the threshing floor of this Jebusite, this Canaanite, by the commandment of Yahweh as the place to build an altar for him in Jerusalem is told both in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the field is the world, and the wheat are the children of the kingdom, then this reference to the threshing floor by John the Baptist has great significance. Luke 3.18 So then, also many other things, exhorting, he had announced to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, having been reproved by him concerning Herodia, the wife of his brother, and concerning all of the evil things which Herod had done, added even this upon all, he had shut John up in prison. The codices, Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, and Washingtonensis have Herodia, the wife of Philip, his brother. For this unlawful 
that is contrary to biblical law, marriage of Herod to Herodia. Here I will quote from Josephus' Antiquities, which fully supports the biblical account here, from Book 18, from line 134. Aristobulus left these infants when he was slain by his father, together with his brother Alexander, as we have already related. Josephus is referring to the first Herod that killed these two of his own sons. He killed others of his own sons in other places. But when they were arrived at years of puberty, this Herod, the brother of Agrippa, married Mariam, the daughter of Olympias, who was the daughter of Herod the king, and of Joseph, the son of Joseph, who was brother to Herod the king, and had by her a son, Aristobulus. But Aristobulus, the third brother of Agrippa, married Yotapa, the daughter of Sampsigaramus, the king of Emesa. They had a daughter who was deaf, deaf, whose name was also Yotapa, and these here too were the children of the male line. But Herodias, their sister, was married to Herod Philip, the son of Herod the Great, who was born of Mariam, the daughter of Simon the high priest, who had a daughter named Salome, after whose birth Herodias took upon her to confound the laws of our country and divorced herself from her husband while he was alive and was married to Herod, Herod Antipas, her husband's brother by the father's side. He was Tetrarch of Galilee. But her daughter Salome was married to Philip, the son of Tetrarch, the son of Herod, and Tetrarch of Trachonitis, and because he died childless. Aristobulus, the son of Herod, the brother of Agrippa, married her. They had three sons, Herod, Agrippa, and Aristobulus. And this was the posterity of Thasaelus and Salopsio. But the daughter of Antipater by Cuprus was Cuprus, whom Alexis Celsius, the son of Alexis, married. They had a daughter, also named Cuprus, but Herod and Alexandria, as we told you, were the brothers of Antipater, who died childless. Now, now that's really hard to follow, because the family of Herod intermarried with first cousins, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts. It didn't matter to them. They did it all the time. So it is hard to follow. And they kept the same names, male and female, in the same branches of the family for generations, which made it all the more confusing. But we see Josephus here related the story that this Herodia had left Philip and while he was still alive had married Philip's brother. She was actually a blood relative to them both, I think she was the niece of them both. John criticized Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife, and therefore Herod shut him up in prison for his criticism. Luke's statement here 
is parenthetical. John the Baptist appears in Luke's Gospel again in chapter 7, where he sends his disciples to inquire about Christ. Luke is only telling us what was about to happen to John. Verse 21. Then it happened, as all the people were being immersed, Yahshua also was being immersed or baptized and praying. The heaven opened, and he had seen the Holy Spirit descending bodily as a dove upon him. And a voice coming from heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am satisfied. The Codex Bazai has verse 22, where the voice comes from heaven as saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Many of the readings of the Codex Bazai are bizarre or different, and, and it stands alone in many aspects. I don't accept it, but it's important to mention it. Perhaps not here, but in many places, the King James actually follows the Codex Bazai. Psalm 2-7, <clears throat> which is quoted in Acts 13-33, and at Hebrews 1-5, and at Hebrews 5-5 says... I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. The text of Matthew agrees with the quote as it appears here in Luke. Where at Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, it records this voice as saying at Christ's baptism, He is my beloved son in whom I am satisfied. 2 Peter chapter 1 from the King James Version, verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we see Peter testify to this event as it is recorded also in Matthew and in Luke. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount, which is a reference also to the transfiguration. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. In the Old Testament, the washing of the body is seen of the priests before they enter into the temple to do service and to make sacrifice. Here I will quote from Leviticus chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. And the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which Yahweh commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And from Numbers chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, And the Levites were purified, and they washed their clothes. 
And Aaron offered them as an offering before Yahweh. And Aaron made an atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, went the Levites in to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Aaron and before his sons, as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so did they unto them. All of Numbers 8, Numbers chapter 8, describes the cleansing of the Levites. Aside from these passages concerning the priests, or certain occasions where people are instructed in what to do upon exposure to diseases or to corpses or certain other circumstances. Aside from these things, there is no other ritual cleansing of the body which is ever required in the law. Remember the words of Yahweh in the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, speaking of John the Baptist, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. John the Baptist was also a Levite. So he could fulfill the priestly role of cleansing, which Moses the Levite had done first, long before him. Like the priests were cleansed, before entering the temple to sacrifice. The sacrifice itself was also washed beforehand. I will quote from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And Yahweh called unto Moses and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, if any man of you bring an offering unto Yahweh, you shall bring of your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his burnt offering be a sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Yahweh. This understanding, this sacrifice, and the ritual and the requirements are important because Christ met them in every respect. Verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him, and he shall kill the, flock, the bullock before Yahweh. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is door the tabernacle of the congregation, and flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an, altar, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. It is apparent that Yahshua, coming to be the final ritual sacrifice for the children of Israel, the prophecy and baptism of John 
which was specifically for the sons of Levi, was also symbolic of the Old Testament law. That is why John was sent to baptize the sons of Levi, so that Christ could be properly sacrificed. And it is also why Christ himself was baptized, so that the sacrifice could be properly cleansed. That is what these things represent. Now, Israel has been cleansed of their sins by Christ himself, as foretold by the prophets, and they have no need of any further cleansing. The baptism of John is fulfilled. It's over. It's done with. Verse 23. And this was Joshua, beginning at about 30 years old, being a son, as was believed of Joseph the son of Eli. Here Luke testifies that Yahshua began his ministry at about 30 years old. And at the opening of this chapter, it was begun in the 15th year of Tiberius, which began in August of 28 AD. It is apparent from Scripture, that Yahshua's ministry was to last about three and a half years, as is evident from Daniel 9.27, where it says, in the midst of the week he would be cut off, a prophetic week being seven years. It's also apparent from the parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. It's also apparent from counting the Passover feasts mentioned in the Gospel of John, which are seen at 2.13, probably at 5.1, again at 6.4, and again at 11.55, which was the Passover of the crucifixion. If this is so, then the crucifixion would be in 32 AD, and Yahshua would have turned 30 in September of 28 AD, right around the time when he was baptized. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy foretells a 69-week period, or 483 years, between the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem and the appearance of the Christ. In the last seven years of Daniel's prophecy, the Christ was to be cut off in the midst of the week. While the temple of Jerusalem was rebuilt in 516 BC, the city was not. Ezra the prophet received the commission from the Persian king Artaxerxes in the seventh year of that king that they may look into the affairs of Judea and Jerusalem. That's in Ezra 7.1 and in 1 Esther's 8.1. 1. 
Artaxerxes' reign began in 465 B.C. by popular chronologies. So his seventh year in 457 B.C. marks Ezra's return trip to Jerusalem upon his commission and took over seven months to prepare for and to complete. 483 years from 28 AD puts one at 456 BC, very reasonably the time when Ezra began the rebuilding of the city. Now many may say that Nehemiah, who was in Jerusalem from 502 to 490 BC, and that can be established, the Arthasasta, that was Nehemiah's title, as given in Nehemiah 5.14. I'm sorry, the Arthasasta of Nehemiah 5.14 being Darius I of Persia, many may say that Nehemiah had rebuilt the city then. That's only partially true. Nehemiah rebuilt the city walls. We see that in Ecclesiasticus chapter 49. But the buildings expected to inhabit the city were very few. That testimony given in Nehemiah itself in chapters 7 and 11. Again, the fall of 28 AD, being the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar and Joshua Christ's 30th year, places his birth in 3 BC. The reason for such a long gap between the rebuilding of the walls by Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the city by Ezra, which really began Daniel's 490-year prophecy, is understood once we understand the history of the Persian Empire, which Judea was certainly subject to, that the Persians were engaged in far more serious matters at this very time. The last year of Nehemiah's tenure at Jerusalem was 490 B.C., and that was the year of the famous Battle of Marathon. The next 10 years of Persian history saw all of the emperor's resources directed towards preparations for Xerxes' invasion of Greece, which was very large in scope. The Judeans participated in that invasion. Herodotus calls them the Syrians of Palestine in his seventh book and again several times in his second book. Comparing Herodotus' descriptions of the Syrians of Palestine and certain things which they did to statements in Josephus proves that this is correct. A perfect chronology is almost impossible to attain However, one that is accurate and within reason certainly may be established. When we place all the anchors into a proper historical context, Daniel's 490-year prophecy began in 457 or 456 B.C., and Christ's ministry began in 28 A.D. To repeat verse 23, and this Joshua, being at about 30 years, beginning at about 30 years old, being a son, as was believed, of Joseph, 
the son of Eli. The actual word for son, huios, appears in this section, this whole section of Luke, only this one time where it says, being a son as was believed of Joseph. All other occurrences of the word son here are only inferred by the use of the genitive masculine singular definite article to, T-O-U, placed before the respective name. And that usage is normal and is explained by several lexicons. The Codex Washingtonensis, which dates from the 5th century, wants the entire genealogy found in Luke, beginning with the phrase, the son of Eli, all the way to the end of the chapter. The Codex Bizai has verses, the last verses of Luke, verses 23 through 31, very much like the Gospel of Matthew reads, however, it's backwards. So the Codex Bizai actually matches the testimony in the list found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 through 16, but in the reverse order as we see the genealogy of Luke's gospel is. Here I will read the genealogy as it appears in the Christiania New Testament, And this was Joshua beginning at about 30 years old, being a son, as was believed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Yanai, the son of Yosef, or Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, we see some names are reported, are repeated, I'm sorry. The son of Semien, the son of Yosak, the son of Yoda, the son of Yohanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zorobabel, the son of Salathiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam the son of Er, the son of Jesus. That word is the same name which gives us Yahshua, which also, through several perturbations, gives us Jesus. The son of Eleazar, the son of Yorim, the son of Mephat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Yosef, the son of Yonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathat, the son of Natham, the son of David, the son of Yesai, the son of Yobel, or Obed, the son of Bus, or Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nahasan. And I will take a moment here to explain that from Acts 13.20, we see 
that it was roughly 450 years from the Exodus until the time when Israel was given a king. These genealogical records show that Salah, the son of Nahasan, was in the Exodus. Therefore, the genealogies show only five generations in a period of over 450 years from Salah to David. And it is evident that the records are almost certainly incomplete. And we see only those five generations in the Old Testament records. By contrast, the prior 430 years, the 430 years from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law at Sinai, as we know from Galatians 3.17, which are found in the verses that cover the period from the father of Salah, Nahasan, all the way back to Isaac, we see nine generations listed in the genealogy over that period. So it's evident that in the time from David to Salah, five generations in 450 years, it's most probable that we have some incomplete records, and that's what we're handed down. Luke 3.33, picking up Ahasan, the son of Adam, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Sarah, the son of Nacor, the son of Saruk, the son of Ragah, the son of Phalek, the son of Eber, the son of Salah, the son of Kahinam, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Sam, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Hinnach, or Enoch, the son of Yaret, the son of Malaleel, the son of Kainam, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of Yahweh. We had also discussed the several apparent flaws when compared to the Old Testament as we have it today, which exist in the genealogy of Christ as recorded by Matthew in his gospel when that gospel was presented here last year. At that time it was said, and I quote, the apostles were not handed the genealogies of the Christ by an angel. Neither were they recited to them by Yahweh himself. The Gospels were written by human eyewitnesses in the case of Matthew and John or the recorders of those eyewitnesses in the case of Luke and Mark. They themselves had to rely on very incomplete records in order to chronicle the events surrounding the coming of Christ in perspective with Hebrew history. 
These records were pieced together as best as their writers could do. They were probably pieced together, at least in part, from unofficial sources, since Herod had long before destroyed the genealogies in the temple. That is reported by Eusebius in the first book of his ecclesiastical history and from earlier sources and which even the Talmud admits in Kedushan 75a. And since the Christian gospel writers were, as it is apparent, not welcome around the public offices anyway, even if they could investigate the records, there are many marvels about Scripture that prove that God is true. But the Gospels and the ancient chronicles which the Gospel writers relied upon are far from complete. Presenting that chapter of Matthew, I then proceeded to describe some of the flaws in the genealogy of Matthew's Gospel, which are also apparent in the Old Testament records as we currently have them, and which I have just illustrated above. It is not that the records are to be accused of being wrong. It is only that they are obviously incomplete in many reasons. between David and Joshua. It can be demonstrated that at least four generations are plainly missing, which are indeed listed in the Old Testament records. They are Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and Jehoiakim. In Luke's genealogy, there are 41 generations listed between David and Joshua, which is many more than Matthew's, even if the apparently missing generations are supplied. Two men are included in both genealogies, about halfway in generations and years between David and Joshua. These two men are Salathiel, and his son, Zorobabel, who led the first return from Babylon and who oversaw the building of the second temple at Jerusalem. He's mentioned in Ezra, Ezra chapters 3 and 5. In Matthew's genealogy, it is seen that Jeconiah, who is called both Jehoiachin, and Coniah in Scripture, as well as Jeconiah. Jeconiah is listed as the father of Salathiel in Matthew's genealogy, but in Luke's genealogy, Neri, which is evidently the Greek form of the Hebrew name Neriah, he is listed as Salathiel's father. There's only one way that Salathiel could have two different fathers under Hebrew law. After Zorobabel, the genealogies again diverge. In Matthew, 
to his son Abiud, but in Luke to another of his sons named Ressa. The Ressa of Luke seems to be the Rephiah, who was the son of Zorobabel, mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3.21, and again in Nehemiah 3.9. Assume these men, the ancestors of Christ, as listed by Luke, following the time of David and Nathan, are virtually unknown anywhere in Scripture. To add to the confusion... The book of Chronicles, at chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, lists Zorobabel not as the son of Salathiel, but of Pediah, his brother. Additionally, Jeconiah himself was cursed, where it says in Jeremiah 22, Verses 29 and 30. O earth, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. There are many reasons which are often conjectured for the differences in Matthew's and Luke's genealogies. From the earliest Christian writers, debate has been made concerning the reasons for these differences, and an entire book could be written attempting to explain all of them. It is also conjectured today in Christian identity as it had been in ancient times that perhaps Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy while Luke really may have recorded the genealogy of Mary. This is, of course, alluring and it makes for an easy explanation. However, it is not in any way supported by the manuscripts themselves. We see in Mark chapter 12 an account also given in the other Gospels. And I read from verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is not to be a resurrection. And they questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother of one should die and lease a wife and should not leave a child, that his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This is a part of the laws of kinsman redemption, which is evidenced in the history of the sons of Judah and again in the redemption of Ruth by Boaz, the grandfather of David. The only way in which it can be imagined, believing the texts of both genealogies as they are written, the only way it can be imagined that both genealogies are true is if 
Matthew's account is seen, since it contains all the kings, as explaining the official line of succession of the throne itself. But if Luke's account is seen as explaining the actual line of physical descent. The departures in the two genealogies can only be explained if on at least two occasions a man raised up seed for a brother who did not leave a male heir to succeed him. One had to occur just before the time of Zorobabel, and another just before the time of Joseph, the stepfather of Christ. However, because the records from the two periods in which that must have happened are not available in Scripture. None of this is recorded. Any other theory that I have so far witnessed, which attempts to explain these differences, hinges, hinges itself on a denial of plain statements which exist in the Gospels and cannot be explained by known Hebrew laws and customs. That is my opinion for the differences in the two Gospels. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren, who still hasn't told me what we're doing, and um, hopefully he'll have a program for us. I will be here next week. No, I'm sorry. I will be in Saline, Louisiana next week with Luke chapter 4. Praise Yahweh. Good night.